Shabbat Shalom, everyone, for the second time tonight. And uh, I am excited to have Michael here with us. And uh, of course, his wife, Stephanie, just stepped in too. And my wife, Sarah, is also listening in tonight. So that's exciting. Yay, Sarah is here. And we are going through the Genesis Targum. I think we're on chapter eight this week. And with that, I would like to, Michael, why don't you just go ahead and open us up? Start reading and give the first commentary if you're ready to go. Sounds good. Shabbat shalom, everyone. Yes, I will be reading chapter eight of the Targum. And if Josh has the the link, you guys can follow along. So, Palestinian Targum 8, verse 1. And the Lord in his word remembered Noah and all the animals and the cattle which were with him in the ark. And the Lord caused the wind of mercies to pass over the earth, and the waters were dried. And the fountains of the deep were shut up, and the windows of heaven, and the rain was forbidden to descend from heaven. And the waters returned from being on the earth, going and returning, and the waters were minished at the end of 150 days. And the ark rested in the seventh month, which is the month of Nisan. In the seventeenth day of the month, upon the mountains of Kedron, the name of the one mountain is Cardenia, and the name of the other mountain is Armenia. And there was builded the city of Armenia in the land of the east. And the waters went and diminished until the tenth month, the month of Tammuz. In Tammuz, in the first of the month, the heads of the mountains were seen. And it was at the end of forty days, and Noah opened the aperture of the ark which he had made. And he sent out a raven, and it went forth, going forth and returning until the waters had dried from the earth. And he sent forth a house dove from being with him, to see whether the waters were lightened from off the face of the earth. And the dove found no rest for the sole of the foot, and returned unto him to the ark. And he knew that the waters were yet upon the face of all the earth. And he reached out his hand, and took and brought her unto him into the ark. And he prolonged, waited yet seven days, and again he sent forth the dove from the ark. And the dove came to him at the evening time, and behold, a leaf of olive gathered, broken off, she brought it in her mouth, and which she had taken from the mount of Mashiach. And Noah understood that the waters had lightened from being on the earth. And he prolonged yet seven days, and added, to send forth the dove, but she added not to return to him again. And it was in the six hundredth and first year in Tishri, in the first month in the beginning of the year, that the waters were dried from upon the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark, and saw the faces of the ground to be dried. And in the month Marshavon, in the twenty-seventh day of the month, the earth was dry. And the Lord spoke with Noah, saying, Go forth from the ark, thou, and thy wife, and thy sons, and the wives of thy sons with thee. Every living animal that is with thee, of all flesh, of all fowl, of cattle, and of every reptile that creepeth on the earth, bring forth with thee, that they may produce in the earth, spread abroad, and multiply in the earth. And Noah went forth, and his sons, and his wife, and the wives of his sons with him. Every animal, every reptile, every bird, which moveth upon the earth, according to its seed, went forth from the ark. And Noah builded the altar before the Lord, that altar which Adam had builded in the time when he was cast forth from the Garden of Eden, and had offered an oblation upon it. And upon it had Cain and Abel offered their oblations. But when the waters of the deluge descended, it was destroyed. And Noah rebuilded it. And he took of all the clean cattle and all the, all the clean fowl, and sacrificed four upon that altar. And the Lord accepted his oblation with favor. And the Lord said in his word, I will not again add to the curse on account of the sin of the children of men. For the imagination of the heart of man is evil from his youth. Neither will I add to destroy whatever liveth as I have done. Until all the days of the earth, sowing in the season of Tishri, and harvest in the season of Nisan, and coldness in the season of Tibet, and warmth in the season of Tammuz, and summer and winter and days and nights shall not fail. Alrighty, uh, we'll start with commentary. Um, 
just trying to play catch up here. Let's see. All right, we'll start off with number one. So, you know, the KGV says, and, and Yah remembered Noah, every living thing and all the cattle that was with him in the ark, and Yah made a wind to pass over the earth, and the waters were suge. Palestinian, different, and the Lord in his word remembered Noah, and all the animals and the cattle which were him in the ark, and the Lord caused the wind of mercies to pass over the earth, and the waters were dried. Now, wind of mercies, uh, Spirit, you know, James 3.17 says, But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. You know, it's you know, it's my my position that you know this wind of mercy was wisdom, was the ruach. Um, and you know, one of her fruits is is mercy. So I thought that was cool. I'm going to add now I did a word study, shocking, on that word remembered. And it's pretty interesting. So I'm going to drop both of those. Let's see. There's one. Two. These are the word studies. So every time this word is used, it's used eight times. So let's go through them real quick. So obviously in this passage right here, uh, Genesis 19, Yah remembered Abraham. So he remembered Noah. He remembered Abraham the same. Genesis 30, he remembered Rachel. And Joseph remembered the dreams. Yah remembered his covenant. We skipped to Isaiah 63. Or no, uh, Psalms 104.6. He says he remembers his covenant. So you can see a trend here. Uh, in each of these cases, the use of remember clearly means an act in loyalty to the covenant. So that's pretty cool that Noah, he remembered Noah because of what he did. He remembered Abraham, Rachel, um, Joseph remembered his dreams. Uh, all that kind of stuff is based on this word and and acting in loyalty to the covenant that Yah made. Um, the other two times that I thought were interesting. So Psalm seventy eight it says he remembered that they were only flesh, a wind that passes and does not return. And then the other one Isaiah sixty three says then he remembered the days of the past, the days of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put his holy spirit among the flock? So I think again it fits kind of with the wind of mercies. Um, wisdom full of mercy, and even in this cross-reference, um, it literally says he put his Holy Spirit among the flock by remembering them. So I thought that was cool. Um, wisdom of Solomon is all about wisdom. Chapter 10 of that verse is basically wisdom being with all the patriarchs. So I, I would highly recommend reading Wisdom of Solomon chapter 10 and just going down the list. She was with Joseph, she was with Adam and Eve, Moses, and she was also with this. So Wisdom of Solomon 10.4 says, When the earth was flooded because of him, wisdom again saved it, steering the righteous man by a paltry piece of wood. So this wisdom was that spirit, the wisdom of mercy, the wind of mercies, the rock of mercies. She was the one with him. Um, that's how I take it. Uh, I'll do two and three. They're pretty short, and I'll hand it back to Noel. Um, number two says, The fountains also of the deep and the windows of heaven were stopped. And the rain from heaven was restrained. So this is obviously, um, you know, Yah restraining this rain. It, it's time to end this flood, right? So um, that word restrained was used in Exodus 36. And I thought it was a pretty cool cross-reference. So Moses issued a command and a proclamation, starting on verse 6, Moses issued a command and a proclamation was circulated throughout the camp saying, let no man or woman any longer perform work for the contributions of the sanctuary. 
Thus people were restrained from bringing any more, for the material they had was sufficient and more than enough for all the work to perform it. So in context, this is a relation to the construction of the temple. So um, Moses basically said, you know, I'm restraining the people from bringing any more. We are done. The, the temple is completed. You can kind of look at it the same way. So Yah basically restrained the water at that exact time that was needed. And his job was completed. Like he didn't have to do it anymore. Everything that was completed. So Moses parallel. Um, again, restraining the people. And finally, uh, number three, it says, uh, and the waters returned from off the earth continually. And after the 150 days, the waters were abated. So that word, the waters returned, coming back, um, used two other times, and we'll get to it later. But uh, when the raven, when he sent forth the raven, which went forth to and fro, that's the same word as the waters were returning until the waters were dried up. And then also in his Ezekiel. Ezekiel 1 says, In the midst of the living beings, there was something that looked like burning coals, a fire, like torches darting back and forth among the living beings. The fire was bright, and the lightning was flashing from the fire. And the living beings ran to and fro like bolts of lightning. Um, again, so that's, it's the same word. I thought it was cool. So, last thing before I end it off to know, waters receded or returned here. So that word, either returned or receded, is exactly the same phrase used of the waters of the Red Sea returning to their place, and also the waters of the Jordan River likewise. So these are the other two great acts of salvation associated with bodies of water in the Old Testament. You know, there's always a pattern there. So they receded here, they receded at the Red Sea, and they receded at the Jordan River. Uh, I'll stop here and hand off the null. That's what I got for the first three. This was one of the week, those weeks when I was going through the notes out here. I'm like, Michael and I are going to comment on all the same things. And uh, so far, that's been pretty much 100% the case. So what I'll basically say here is I affirm what Michael has said. And um, but I'm going to just give a few more added, uh, give a little bit more padding uh, based on, hopefully I won't repeat any of the verses that he already went over. Now, obviously, with the idea of the, the wind of mercies, right? And... Michael is spot on. That is the Ruach HaKadosh. And here's, here's some evidence for that. I, I was trying to find what some rabbinical or you know, old literature has to uh, say or commentary has to say on this idea of the wind passing over. And I found this really interesting one from Philo. Now, Philo, just uh, some ways, I don't know, some of the ways he writes kind of annoys me. Uh, that's fine. He probably is annoyed by me too. So it's you know, feelings are probably mutual. No big deal. But what he had to say here was um, he, he gave a really good case for the the wind being something that wasn't just purely physical wind. All right. So here's what he says. What is the meaning of the expression? He brought a breath over the earth and the waters ceased. Some people say that what is here meant by a breath is the wind. So people in his own day were saying, no, 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 it's, it's just the wind. That's all it's saying. Purely, you know, the purely physical, exoteric, you know, explanation, scientific, so on and so forth, at which the deluge ceased. But I am not aware that water is diminished by wind, but only that it is disturbed and agitated into waves. For if it were otherwise, the vast extent of the sea would have been wholly dried up long ago. So what he says there is spot on. Now, as 
many of you know, I live on the water. I don't live on the ocean. I live on a, uh, a reservoir and actually uh, an alligator preserve. And you can go out to my back porch. You look and sometimes the water is just crystal clear, like glass calm. It's so beautiful. You can see all the reflections of the clouds above and the trees and everything. And then the wind picks up and it can get choppy out there. That just uh, was it yesterday, last night, like this, this strong, like bleak black storm blew in. The trees were blowing over and you could look out there and our, all of our electricity went out for about three hours and you could look out there and just see the, the, the water choppy. So if this were just a wind coming down, it wouldn't have, the water wouldn't have disappeared. And as, as, uh, Philo points out, if this were the case, then the oceans would have disappeared a long time ago, too. So I love the way he takes that logic. He's saying, if you think that the wind did this, then why is the ocean still here? It's almost like it's almost like a, a debating against like evolutionists. You know, it's, it's, it's a great little debate he gives. All right. So let's see. What else? He, how does he finish this? Um, Therefore, it appears to me that the sacred writer here means the breath of the deity. All right. So the. Ruach HaKadosh. And I don't know if he has, you know, obviously he doesn't have all the same ideas of the Ruach HaKadosh as we do, I don't think. All right. Now, the next thing that really stuck out to me is the fact that Yahuwah remembered. And Michael did a great time uh, going over some of that commentary. So I'll add some of this. Now, one of the ones I went over earlier tonight in my Roman study was Psalm 105.8. And this is what it says. Elihim has remembered his covenant forever the word which he commanded to a thousand generations not just one generation not just to a people group over so like a thousand generations is a lot of generations all right so the idea all throughout scripture is that uh mankind fails to remember but elohim will always remember and praise y'all for that that he will he will always come through on his end now i did find there was an interesting relationship between uh, uh, intercourse with a man and a woman and Yahuwah remembering the woman. That's really interesting. Now, Michael went over some of those in Genesis and how they have to do with you know covenant keepers. Uh, you know, like Abraham um, was faithful and obedient and he remembered him and so on. And in Genesis 21.1, huh, he didn't mention that one. Well, let's go over this. It says, and Yahuwah remembered Sarah according to that which he had said to her. And Yahuwah wrought a miracle for Sarah like to that for which Abraham had spoken in prayer for Abimelech. So Yahuwah remembered her. And then again, we see in Genesis 30, 22, and this time it says, and this I'm speaking from the Targum here, it says, and the word of Yahuwah remembered Rachel in his good compassions. And the word of Yahuwah heard the voice of her prayer. And he said in his word that he would give her children. Interesting that both of those women went a long time without having children and he remembered them. And hopefully that's all of our prayer that Yahuwah remembers us. Uh, here we see another one from Samuel uh, chapter one, verse 19. It says, and they rose up in the morning early and worshiped before Yahuwah and returned and came to their house to uh, Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, Hannah, his wife, and Yahuwah remembered her. So that's so interesting that these these holy men they they have relationship with their wives and and Yahu remembers the women. So in Exodus two twenty four, which Michael did mention, Elohim heard the groaning of his people Israel who were slaves in Egypt, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with uh, with Yitzchak and Yaakov. So there we see that there now. 
later after Yahusha's death and resurrection, actually, let me just jump to uh, the, well, no, I'm not going to jump to the New Testament there. So this is where we see that mankind does not remember uh, the, uh, the covenants or their promises to Yahuwah. And it says in Judges 8.34, And the children of Yahshua remembered not Yahuwah their Elohim, who had delivered them out of the hands of all their enemies on every, on every side. That's not a good thing. And that's unfortunately what we see time and again with mankind. And this is a trend I noticed in the New Testament, that Yahusha is the fulfillment of Yahuwah remembering and following through with what he said to follow through with. And yet mankind uh, wasn't always able to see it. So Matthew 26, 75 says, And Kepha remembered the words of Yahusha, which said unto him, Before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. And he went out and wept bitterly because he had forgotten and he obviously denied Messiah and sin. Luke twenty two sixty one says, And Yahuwah turned and looked upon Peter, which that had to be an awful moment. And Kepha remembered the word of Yahuwah. He remembered in how he had said unto him, Before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. Uh, let's see. And then what do we read in John, Yohanan 2, 22? When there... Uh, when, there, when therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the scripture. So it's kind of interesting that uh, Yahuwah remembers before an action is taken, and then mankind seems to be treated in a way, in a way that they remember afterwards. Like you could almost spin this like, uh, I, I shouldn't say spin it, but Yahuwah remembered Noah. He took a course of action, and then... Noah remembered that Yahuwah said he was going to do these things, if that makes any sense to you. All right. So in the Old Testament examples that were given by myself and Michael, the text uses the Hebrew word zakar, if I'm pronouncing that right, Z-A-K-A-R in English, which means to remember. On a deeper level, it means to bring someone to mind and then act on that person's behalf, which is what Yahuwah does for us, and particularly through the high priest, Yahusha. That's exciting to be remembered by Elohim and hopefully be rem uh, remembered in our remembering of him. So I hope that when he remembers me, it is, it is remembering me for my remembering of him. Does that make any sense? And not, not for my forgetting him. In every instance of Elohim remembering, we see in the Old Testament that it, it always includes action. David cries to Yahuwah in the Psalms. Um, are just as much cries for action as affection. For instance, in Psalm 25, let's see, did Michael mention that one? David begs Elohim to remember Yahuwah, your great mercy and love, remember me. This is a cry for help, for rescue, for deliverance, not just a cry for love. Now, I don't really have anything more to add on 2-3, except to mention what Michael actually already brought up last week, was that Noah's flood simply does not work on a globe earth model. Now, I'm not just saying this after the fact. This bothered me for years. I was always on board with the young earth creationism from the time I can recall. Now, just so we're clear, young earth creationism is exclusively exclusively holds to the Copernican revolution, to the natural re revelation of astronomy, as well as the Apollo missions. Though I, can, I suppose you could be a young earth creationist and say that the Apollo missions were a lie, uh, though they do, you know, they all advocate and support it. 
And I can recall and remember sitting there with maps and sometimes even a globe trying to figure out where all the water went. You know, this idea that the water uh, covers the highest mountain on a globe. And it's like, where, where does all that go? And of course, you know, when you look at the flat earth model, uh, it makes total sense. I'm assuming all my, my listeners here have some understanding of it. You could look up human cosmology and recognize that there are waters above, waters below. They probably all kind of, um, even though we've done studies and show how it's uh, masculine waters on top, feminine on the bottom, I wouldn't be surprised if the water is kind of like kind of mixed around like in a circle, you know, they, they drain down, they go up, go all over the place. Uh, there is a, probably a current of it up there. Anyways, all that to say, handing it back over to Michael. Awesome commentary. And I just want to say, even if I do steal your thunder, please, please share. Um, I know I learn when I hear it multiple times. Um, so number, number four. So this was interesting to me. So in KGV, it says the ark rested in the seventh month on the 17th day of the month upon the mountains of Ararat. Palestinian and the ark rested in the seventh month, which is the month of Nisan, and the 17th day of the month upon the mountains of Kadron. Um, and it continues. So there's a difference, obviously, in um, biblical month. The seventh month would be in the fall, where in this one, this is this is taking the the route of you know the, the Jewish uh, calendar, and uh, their seventh month is in the spring, not month of Nisan. Um, so what do you guys think about that? Um, also, the last chapter we talked about the fountains of the great deep broken up on the seventeenth day of the second month. We had the same issue there. If you remember, I was kind of going over both the both the two calendars. But while well, in this chapter they are rested on the seventeenth day of the seventh month, that's exactly five months. We've talked about the one hundred fifty days before. Do you guys have any other additional takes on that? Um, so since Palestinian talked about the month of Nisan being Nisan seventeen, I just want to you know mention a few other times, at least according to what I found on the inter internet. Um, the Hebrews entered Egypt on this day. Moses led Israelites through the parting of the Red Sea on this day. Um, Israel entered and ate the first fruit of the promised land on this day. The cleansing of the temple by Hezekiah. Queen Esther saved the Jews or Yehuda from elimination. And the resurrection of the Messiah. We're all on this day. So there's some parallel there. What do you guys think about that? Nisan 17. Um, real quick, I'm not going to go deep into this, but this was... So the 17th day of the seventh month has special significance for me. So part of my testimony was I got in trouble with the, the law <laughs> and I was arrested on this day, 17th day of the seventh month. And when I, it, it was a, uh, it was a DUI that got dropped, uh, lowered. But, um, so when I first started reading the Bible, this, this day really stuck to me and I, I felt the father talking to me, <laughs> uh, cause this is basically when the ark rested. The shalom happened and the new beginning happened. And anybody who's heard my testimony knows that that was a pivotal moment in my life. So um, that's what, you know, got me starting to read the Bible. And I, I just think it's amazing how, how Yah speaks through you through, or through, through his living word here. Um, and then obviously, who cares about the calendar or whatever? 17th day and then the Gregorian of the 17th of the seventh month hit me. Um, okay, so... Jasher 6. So I want to talk about what Jasher has to say about this. Um, this is Jasher. So I'm only going to read a few, but I wanted you guys to get the kind of the whole context. I'm going to read on 30. It says, And all the living creatures that were in the ark were terrified, and the lions roared, and the oxen lowed, 
and the wolves howled, and every living creature in the ark spoke and lamented in its own language, so that their voices reached to a great distance, and Noah and his sons cried and wept in their troubles. They were greatly afraid that they had reached the gates of death. And Noah prayed unto Yahuwah and cried unto him on account of this. And he said, O Lord, help us, for we have no strength to bear this evil that has encompassed us. For the waves of the waters have surrounded us. Mischievous torrents have terrified us. The snares of, the, of death have come before us. Answer us, O Lord, answer us. Light up thy countenance towards us and be gracious to us. Redeem us and deliver us. And Yahuwah hearkened to the voice of Noah. And the Lord remembered him. And a wind passed over the earth, and the waters were still, and the ark rested. The fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven stopped. I'll stop there, but um, that's pretty intense. You get way more in Jasher. What do you guys think about that? Do you, like, you know, depending on how you take it, you know, most people just say, oh, no, it was protected. You know, he didn't really feel anything. It was just a boat that was just rising with, with the water. But if you take this account, there was a lot of fear. They had to, they had to um, you know, cry out to the Father. They, they were scared. They were fearful. It sounds a lot like uh, he was, God was wait, um, was uh, hoping that they would like respond, like he wanted them to ask or to say, you know, hey, what's going on? You know, I mean, he wanted them to engage, you know what I mean? Right, right. And then um, it wasn't, you know, it's like he wanted them to recognize that they have authority and they don't need to be so afraid and and it would take them to come to the end of themselves before they would reach out to him and he doesn't want them to wait that long right um mm -hmm. and actually well so when i was reading this and my wife pointed this out that you know, it made me think of yeshua calming the storm too so um with his disciples i just wanted to read that real quick it mm -hmm. said um uh, in Mark 4, it says, That day when the evening came, he said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat, so it was nearly swamped. But Yeshua was in the stern, sleeping. The disciples woke him and said, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? And he got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. But I just kind of thought it was a cool parallel. Um, you know, if you just take the Masoretic Canon, you know, you don't hear much of what Noah was thinking during it. Um, but I thought Jasher provided extra context and it kind of linked it to the Mark passage. Um, I'll do one more and hand it off to Noel, just number seven real quick. Um, this is the Raven. So, uh, KGB says, and he sent forth a Raven, which went forth to and fro. I mentioned this verse earlier, um, until the waters were dried up from the earth. So, you know, most people, you know, you hear the word Raven and you're down on it. You, you know, you hear bad things about it. Uh, it's not considered food. Food, maybe this verse, you're like, oh, you know, we needed the dove to go out there. But I, I just want to talk about some of the good things that the ravens do. So Elijah was cared for by ravens. They brought him food in First Kings. Um, they are expressly mentioned as instances of God's protected love and goodness in Job and Luke. Um, in Luke, it says, you know, consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor weep. They have no storeroom, nor barn, and yet Yah feeds them. How much more valuable you are than the birds. So again, just equating that Yah does take care of them. Um, they are his creation. They have their own roles. And um, in Proverbs, it talks about uh, the eye that mocks a father and scorns a mother. The ravens of the valley will pick it out and young eagles will eat it. So again, they're still doing their purpose. And finally, um, now to take the other side, you know, I, I mentioned all the good things. Um, who else in scripture is described as roaming the earth to and fro? None other than Satan himself. So there is obviously a bad side to the raven. And I know there's some occult stuff to it. I'll hand it off to Noel. 
Lisa made a comment in here while you were talking, and I thought this was interesting. That she said, "I noticed that the wind passed over the waters, and the waters were uh, assuaged, which means that the wind was actually set settling, or yes, calming the waters. Which, by the way, isn't what wind actually does, right? The wind, uh, the faster the wind is, the more the water is tempered. But we see the opposite happening here. So that's just a really interesting." observation she put forward now when we see that the the it seems like the the writers of the targum is is kind of putting an extra emphasis on uh placing where the ark landed that the the masoretic doesn't necessarily say so i found that fascinating so i'll just read the verse again and the ark rested in the seventh month which is the month of nisan in the 17th day of the month Upon the mountain of uh, Kadron, I guess you pronounce that. The name of the one mountain is Cardania. And the name of the, no, I didn't take the time to look up these ancient sources. I wish I did. You know, it's one of those things that it just, it didn't happen. But, and, and the name of the one mountain is Cardania, and the name of the other mountain, um, um, Armenia. And there was builded the city of Armenia in the land of the east. This is where we get, you know, the Armenians, right? So, this is uh, ancient commentary. Uh, this goes back to Josephus, and this is what he talks about the positioning of the Ark. And there's a point to this. I find it interesting. However, the Armenians call this place uh, the place of descent. So that's kind of really interesting. The name, according to the Armenians, uh, which is uh, Apobaterion. So they're actually saying that it's the place that the Ark descended in rest. For the ark being saved in that place, it remains. Its remains are shown there by the inhabitants to this day. Well, that's interesting. So Josephus is saying that in his day, the ark was known. Everybody knew where it was, and they would show its remains. Well, what happens when you show the remains of something? It disappears pretty quickly. A good example of this is if every if anyone has been to Petrified Forest National Park, which is in I think New Mexico or is it Arizona? Uh, it's one of the two. I've been there a couple times, and you will see photos of Petrified Forest National Park, hundred years ago, back when uh, John Muir was there, and it was lush with petrified trees. You go there now, you can't find any. It's just sand. You might find a few, but it's because people go there and they collect it. They take it. They haul it off. So you can imagine what would happen if the Ark became a pilgrimage site. Well, let's see what else Josephus has to say about it. Now, all the writers of the barbarian histories make mention of this flood and of this Ark. So what Josephus is saying is that all the historians, uh, by barbarians, they, weren't, uh, they, they didn't believe the Torah was truth. They didn't follow it. They didn't follow the instructions of righteous living. But they all believed that the Ark happens. Uh, the flood happened, and that there was a physical ark you can go and see. Among whom is uh, Barosus the Chaldean. Uh, he mentions one historian. For when he is describing the circumstances of the flood, he goes on thus: It is said. Uh, this is according to Barosus the the Chaldean. It is said there is still some parts of the ship in Armenia, at the mountain of the uh, uh, I can't pronounce that that Cordians, that some people carry off pieces of the the bitumen which they take away and use chiefly as amulets for averting of mischiefs. So it sounds like they're trying to like fight off demons and spirits and that kind of stuff with these amulets. Uh, and then this other guy, Hieronymus, the Egyptian, also, who wrote the Phoenician Antiquities, 
and um, and this other guy named Manassius and a great many more make mention of the same. Nay, Nicholas of Damascus, in his 96th book, hath a particular revelation about them where he speaks thus. There is a great mountain in Armenia called Baris, upon which it is reported that many who fled at the time of the deluge were saved, and that one who was carried in an ark came on shore upon the top of it, and that the remains of the timber were a, a great while preserved. This might be the man with about whom Moses, the legislator of the Jews, wrote. So this guy, this um, uh, this guy from Damascus, is is basically agreeing and saying this ark existed. The pieces were there. People went and collected it, uh, and it's probably the same guy who this this Moses, the legislator, uh, wrote about. And so I, I'm not, you know, wanting to stomp on um, was it Ron Wyatt's discovery? Maybe that that petrified ship. Maybe that's it. Maybe it really is. I don't know. But it, it's interesting that we, what we don't really see in history anymore, they've kind of scrubbed this idea that everyone back in Yahusha's time apparently knew, like, hey, you want to go see the ark? You can go on a pilgrimage. You can go see it. That's kind of a really exciting thought. And uh, it's obviously not there anymore, probably because we're in a post-millennial, you know, mud flood uh, society and everything has changed, been destroyed, taken away, hold off, or so on and so forth. It is what it is. And I'm going to go ahead, I, Michael, I'm going to let you finish your commentary on the Raven and the Dove, and if you have any more, uh, because I do have some commentary, and I don't want to take anything from you. I was going to go through verse 12. Do you have anything you want to touch on? Uh, I do. Um, I don't mind if you want to go first. All right. it's, it's okay. Yeah. All right. So we're going to be primarily dealing with verses 7 through 12, and this tells the story of the dove and the raven, as you guys all know. Now, notice that the dove went on three separate missions. Why did the dove not find any rest on its first flight if the land was already visible via the flight of the raven? So look, let me just read this for you because it's a little confusing. Verse 7 says, And he sent out a raven, and it went forth, going forth and returning, until the waters had dried from the earth. Okay, so now the waters had dried from the earth. All right. And then he sent forth a house dove from being with him to see whether the waters were lighted from the, off the face of the earth. Well, wait a second. I thought the waters had already dried. So why is he now sending out a, date, uh, a dove to figure out the same thing? Why did, it, why did the dove return on its second flight with an olive branch? If it did gain access to such a tree as an olive, why did it come back at all? After all, on its third flight, it didn't return. So what's going on? Part of the problem to the first question may re be related to how the sequencing is written. And I mentioned, if you remember several weeks ago, that when Moses gets to this part with Noah in, in chapter 7 and 8 particularly, there's a lot of overlapping and repeated phrases, and it can be very confusing. It is possible that Noah sent out the raven and that the raven kept circling, kind of to and fro, right? And he keeps seeing it come back and circle around, and it's not at rest. And so Noah sent out the dove while this was happening. So it happened both at the same time. Both flights happened, of course, at the same, at the same time in verses 7 and 8. Uh, so the Hebrew uh, literally reads, let's see, how does this go? The Hebrew text doesn't explicitly rule out the possibly possibility that the raven later returned, though it seems like it, it's giving this picture 
that the raven, uh, it kept circling around, coming to and fro, and then it never returned. Well, the LXX is more explicit, and it says, and it went forth and did not return. The raven was, now, Michael gave both sides of the story. I'm only going to give one side to the story. I think that there is a, a contrast being made here between righteousness and wickedness. And that doesn't mean that ravens are wicked, but they are an unclean bird. The raven was specifically declared to be an unclean bird only uh, under the Mosaic law in Leviticus 11.15, Deuteronomy 14.14. And we know that there would have been, um, you know, 14 clean animals on the ark and a pair of unclean. So he's literally, he's taking one of only two ravens he had here, and he's kind of like, he's giving it up. I mean... It's interesting that I guess the other raven eventually met up with that first raven because there was only two of them. It only says it says one flew off. So what about the other? Contrarily, the dove is used as a positive symbol in the Bible, depicting youth in the Song of Songs, 115, um, depicted as love again in the Song of Songs, uh, chapter 2, 5, and 6, and innocence in Matthew, where he says, be as you know, innocent as a dove. Indeed, at Yahushua's baptism, the Ruach HaKadosh descended on him in bodily form like a dove. Well, actually, uh, I take that back. Uh, because, Well, yeah, no, the, the dove did, the, the Holy Spirit. And and we've, we've talked about this in other instances of the Targum as well. I guess the question I have is then, why did Noah send out the raven first and then decide upon the dove? Why was the raven incapable of completing a very simple task? When the dove found the olive tree, why did it return? Well, olive trees, interestingly enough, I, a little science for you here, can sprout from wet ground, apparently. So if there is a tree that's going to grow right after the, uh, the ground begins to dry, it, an olive tree is a, a very good contender for that. And doves won't nest or rest on such a surface. So even though the, the olive tree was sprouting, the dove wouldn't have felt comfortable at home there. And the tree, uh, the trees were obviously not yet of sufficient size anyways. That's the exoteric explanation to a deeper esoteric, I, I believe. The ancients, among them Philo again, argued that the two birds represented vice and virtue. The raven never returned as it is comfortable in the destroyed world, while the dove represents a virtue. Hence, must return as it cannot bear to live among the remnants of such havoc. That was Philo's worldview. It's kind of interesting. I can't help but wonder if we are seeing the sons of Azazel with the children of Elohim compared here. Consider now that in the, um, the apocalypse of Abraham, Azazel appears to Abraham as an unclean bird. We're not told what the unclean bird is. For some reason, I've always... Uh, always imagined a, a raven of some sort. And this is what it says. And I did everything according to the command of the angel and gave the angels who had come to us, the divided animals. But the angel took the birds. And I waited until the evening sacrifice. And there flew an unclean bird down upon the carcasses, and I drove it away. And the unclean bird spoke to me and said, Abraham, what are you doing upon these holy heights where no man eats or drinks? Nor is there upon them the food of man, but these heavenly beings consume everything with fire and will burn you up. 
forsake the man who is with you and flee. For if you ascend into the heights, they will make an end of. And it came to pass when I saw the bird speak, I said to the angel, what is this, my Adonai? And he said, this is ungodliness. This is Azazel. And he went to it. Disgrace upon you, Azazel, for Abraham's lot is in heaven, but yours is upon the earth, because you have chosen and loved this for the dwelling place of your uncleanness. Therefore, the eternal mighty Yahuwah made you to be dweller upon the earth, and through you every evil spirit of lies, and through you wrath and trials for the generations of ungodly men. For Elohim, the eternal mighty one, has not permitted that the bodies of the righteous should be in your hand in order that thereby the life of the righteous and the destruction of the unclean may be assured. Now, he goes on and on from there. Interesting enough, we were, a little side note, uh, we were talking about uh, human man-made laws and when uh, a, a person of the law, an administrator of the law, a police officer, a judge, a lawyer, anyone, uh, they ask you a question, do you understand? If you answer the question, you're actually placing yourself under their authority. And it's interesting that Abraham was instructed by the angel not to answer Azazel's um, questions on the basis he said that you will then put yourself under his authority and you're not under his authority. I thought that was really interesting. So point is, okay, so let's talk a little bit about um, the Mount of Olives. Now it says here that the dove uh, it said, and the dove came to him at the evening time, and behold, a leaf of olive gathered, broken off. She brought it in her mouth, it, which had been taken from the Mount of Mashiach. The Masoretic doesn't say that, but the Aramaic Targum adds that the olive came from the Mount of Messiah. So that's really fascinating. So that's the contrast. While the Ruach HaKadesh dries the earth, the raven finds no peace. He finds no shalom. But the dove does find peace. Interesting that the dove journeys to the Mount of Olives to do it, too. Now, especially if the ark is coming down in modern-day Turkey, that's quite the flight. I mean, if he's going all the way to the Mount of Olives, but that's what it says. Many Jewish people throughout history have requested to be buried on the Mount of Olives. If you can go there to this day, and you're going to see all their, their graves, you know, their tombs, and all lined up there. The Jewish people believe that when the Messiah comes, unfortunately they missed it, but he will come on the Mount of Olives, and therefore those buried there will have a front row seat to the Messiah. So it's all facing the temple, and they think you know they're all gonna you know they'll be the the first to rise with them. It's a very arrogant kind of point of view. And ironically, Yahushua Messiah did appear there. He was captured there, and he was crucified. Yeah, that's irony for you. So the very people that were waiting for the Messiah to Come, they actually killed, they betrayed him right there on that very mountain. That's not a coincidence. A thousand years before Messiah, King David was forced out of Yerushalayim and rejected as king by his own son Absalom. He left Yerushalayim, crossed the Kidron Valley, and made his way up the Mount of Olives. Uh, as David climbed the mountain, he wept and mourned for himself and the betrayal he experienced, but also for his own sinfulness. And you can be you can find this in 2 Samuel chapter 15. Years later, the Mount of Olives was central to the life of the Messiah. Yahushua taught on the Mount of Olives and often went there to pray. He, like David, was rejected in Yerushalayim. After the triumphal entry, he crossed the Kidron Valley. It's basically a reverse of what David did. And climbed, um, and then he climbed the Mount of Olives the day before his betrayal and arrest. Um, so you can, and he, of course, ascended from there too in the Gospels. And all that to say is it's just really interesting that uh, they 
claim in the Aramaic Targum that the Mount of Olives is the mountain of Messiah. And we see that it was very central to the life of David. It was central to the life of Yahusha. And why did the dove go there of all the mountains? Um, I don't have the answers for that. But there's something uh, significant going on in the relationship between the raven and the dove. And I think it's spiritual. Uh, the, the, the defense rests. I leave it to the jury. Back to you, Michael. <clears throat> awesome stuff. A uh, little bit of thunder, but it's all good. Um, where am I? So I, I talked about the raven. Now I'm going to talk about the dove, and I'll I'll end on twelve as well, and then hand it back to Noel. But uh, on number nine, it says, you know, the dove found no rest for the sole of her foot, and she returned. Um, that that word "no rest" was was used a bunch of times, and at least the times I found, it was for disobedient people. So. Um, Deuteronomy 28 says, Moreover, the Lord will scatter you among all the peoples for being disobedient from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth, and there you shall serve other gods and wood stone which you and your fathers have not known. Among those nations you shall find no rest, and there will be no resting place for the sole of your feet. So just as the dove found no rest, um, when you are scattered among the nations for disobeying, you will, you will find no rest. Isaiah 34 says, her palaces will be overgrown with thorns. Her fortified cities with thistles and briars. Does that ring a bell for this chapter? She will become a dwelling for jackals, an abode for ostriches. The desert creatures will meet hyenas, and one wild goat will call to another. Indeed, the screech owl, or Lilith, I think, will stay there and find a resting place for herself. So again, that word resting place is the same word as no rest, or the dove. So again, it's, again, it's equating disobedient, not finding peaceful rest and in this case the screech owl which i'm almost i didn't get a chance to double check it but i'm almost certain that was lilith in isaiah 34 lamentations one starting on three it says judah has gone into exile under affliction and under harsh servitude she dwells among the nations but she has found no rest same word so i thought that was interesting that the consistent pattern of that word for no rest was being disobedient and yad basically placing you among the nations and being scattered um I thought that was cool that the dove found a rest. But um, so I forgot to add it here, but a few episodes back, I mentioned wisdom not finding a dwelling place. If you recall, I want to say it's Enoch, but it fits here with the dove because she is the Holy Spirit. She she found no rest or even that Sirach passage that uh, Pam put in the chat. But, uh, you know, continuing on the Holy Spirit, you know, Noel mentioned that Luke 3.22, you know, um, when so when all the people were baptized, Yeshua was also baptized, and he was praying. Heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven, or bat kol, "You are my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased." Um, again, if you compare the three accounts in the Gospels to this exact um, story, uh, Luke's the only one that says bodily form. It says bodily form like a dove. Um, so I thought that was interesting. So uh, other things on the dove. In the sacrificial system, the dove and the turtle dove were the only birds admitted as sacrifice. Think about that. I thought that was interesting. Leviticus 12 says, starting on the 6th, when the days of her puric, and this, this was one of the mind-blowing things. So hopefully I can explain it well um, during the study. When the days of her purification are complete, whether for a son or a daughter, she used, to, she used to bring the priest at the entrance to the tent of meeting a year-old lamb for a burnt offering and a young pigeon, or Yonah, or, or a turtle dove for a sin offering. And the priest will present them before Yahweh 
and make atonement for her, and she shall be cleansed from her flow of blood. This is the law for a woman giving birth, whether to a male or female. But if she cannot afford a lamb, she shall bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons or Yona. Um, then the priest will make atonement for her and she'll be clean. So I never even put two and two together that a dove is a sacrifice for a woman giving birth. And she was in bodily form like a dove um, in his spiritual birth, maybe. I don't know. And then obviously Mary and all that kind of stuff. I just thought it was pretty crazy that a dove was used for the offering of a, a woman giving birth. Um, and, you know, we, you know, the, the set-apart spirit, in, in my opinion, is, is wisdom. Um, but, uh, okay, so... As I mentioned earlier, I mentioned bath coal. So um, Rabbinic talks about Yah's spirit is hovering like a dove above, it, above its young in the nest and the divine voice or the bat coal echoing through time and space like the murmuring call of a dove. And I know Noel has talked about bath coal a lot. It's, it's pretty interesting. I'm just going to do a little few sentences. Um, so the bath coal literally means daughter of voice and was heavenly or divine voice which proclaims Yah's will or judgment. Um, so it differed from prophecy in that Yah had a closer relationship with the prophet, while the bath coal could be heard by any individual or group, regardless of their level of connection. Um, some examples, bath coal spoke to Abraham, Esau, Israelites of the Sea of Reeds, Moses, Aaron, Saul, David, Solomon, King Manasseh, Nebuchadnezzar, inhabitants of Sheol, and I'll stop there. But um, an example of the possible bath coal in the canon is Daniel 4, 28. It's all about Nebuchadnezzar. It says, all this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of 12 months as he was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon. The king explained, Is this not Babylon the Great that I have built by my vast power to be a royal residence and to display my majestic glory? While the words were still in the king's mouth, a voice came down from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared that the, that the kingdom has departed from you. You will be driven away from people to live with the wild animals and you will feed on grass like cattle for seven periods of time until you acknowledge that the Most High is ruler over the kingdom of men. So is this the bath coal speaking to Nebuchadnezzar? I don't know. I, I, I lean that way. You know, others would have a different interpretation. Uh, number 10. And he, Noah, stayed yet other seven days. And again, he sent forth the dove out of the ark. So the Hebrew word translated, and he stayed, in this verse, can also mean these words. So it could be to mean grieved or hurt, being anguished, wounded, exceedingly grieved, travaileth, sore pained within me, and I pained at my heart. So Noah was hurting. <laughs> Noah was hurting that he had to wait another seven days, that it, it wasn't ready yet, that he had to send the ark again. So I just wanted you guys to know that, that Noah had a, an intense emotional pain during this time, at least just based on the Hebrew. Um, sore pained in his heart, exceedingly grieved, wounded. I thought that was cool. Um, number 11, so... And Noel mentioned this a lot, and I just want to talk about the olive leaf as well. So the dove came back with the olive leaf plucked. Um, Palestinian says, um, came at evening time, and a leaf of olive gathered and broken off. Um, and then he mentioned the mounts. Uh, I didn't go much into that, but um, so some commentary on this. So I thought these were cool. The, the fact that the dove came back at evening suggests that it had found a resting places during the day. So... In ancient times, mariners would take birds aboard and use them to determine their proximity to land. So I thought that was a practical use of um, what could have possibly happened here, where they would send birds. Um, uh, plants were growing again. We've, we've talked about this. That is suggested by flesh, freshly plucked. 
So in other words, it, it wasn't debris floating on the surface or shipwrecked, you know, stuff like that. So it was freshly plucked, as uh, Noel mentioned. Um, rabbinic literature interpreted the olive leaf as young shoots of the land of Israel, or the dove's preference for bitter food in Yah's service, rather than sweet food in the service of man. You know, bitter herbs, I don't know if there's anything to that, but I thought that was interesting. Um, I'm going to post this. I thought this was an amazing article um, on the olive leaf. I, I would highly recommend saving that. Um, but I'm just going to kind of summarize. Um, so the olive tree was used for fruit to eat, oil for fuel for their lamps, medicinal, cosmetic, ceremonial in the temple. Um, the wood was fuel supply in construction. Um, and the interesting thing about these trees is that they're long-lived. So some trees are over 2,000 years old. They begin to produce olives after 6 to 10 years of growth. After an olive tree reaches a certain point in growth, it won't produce much fruit. So the tree has to be severely pruned and come back to the stump. Then new shoots spring from the stump and it begins to produce fruit again. So as you guys know, Israel is compared to an olive tree. Um, Yah was patient with the tree. He watered it, dug it, expected it to bear fruit, did not bear fruit. Um, it worshipped other gods and he cut it down. And then, wouldn't you know, in Isaiah 11, out of this stump, Yah brought, brought forth a new shoot. A shoot will come from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. So Messiah, it's one of my favorite chapters. Isaiah 11 talks about the seven spirits, but it's also Messiah um, coming from that. So, you know, shooting again, like, like I was describing. Um, pure beaten olive oil was best in quality. Leaves, twigs, and dirts having been removed. The olives were beaten to pieces, crushed, put in a basket. Now, this was cool. The oil was allowed to flow out by itself. It was considered a sort of first fruit as it was obtained before the pulp was put underneath the press. That's amazing. You, know, you can just think of all the prophecies about first fruits and not having to press, right? They were already pressing themselves. Um, and, and another fact, the cherubim were depicted in Solomon's temple fashioned of olive wood. So that's just another biblical example of olive leaf, olive tree. So just to link it back to why the dove plucked that as well. Um, I have one more on 12, and then I'll hand it back to Noel. Um, so I want to talk about, and some of you guys have known this, but the chiastic structure in the Bible. And I'm going to paste the definition of that. Um, but, uh, and then also this. So I'm a numbers guy. You guys know that. Look at this chiastic structure. It's, it's basically the last two chapters. So 740 and 150. Seven days waiting to enter the ark. Second mention of seven days waiting in 710. 40 days, 717. 150 days, 724. Yah remembers Noah. We just started with that, 8-1. And it goes backwards. 150 days, 8-3. 40 days, 8-6. Seven days waiting for a dove, 8-10. Second seven days waiting for a dove. So I would highly recommend looking into the chiastic structure of the Bible. You'll see many crazy patterns. This one just fits right here. 740, 150. Those are all important numbers. We've discussed those. A lot. I will stop here and hand off the note. Well, I don't actually have a lot more on this chapter. What I did want to focus on is in verse 20. And for those of you who recall, I think a lot of the people listening in to this group tonight are a little bit new to my research. Uh, there are some veterans in here. But I did a video probably 
uh, probably a year ago now, almost uh, at least nine months ago or something like that, which, you know, in, in the world of research and YouTube and all that is basically an eternity ago. And I talked a lot about the, the altar of Yahuwah and making the case that the, uh, this altar was the same as uh, basically this altar was out on Mount Zion where the temple would go up. And it was the same location of the mountain of worship, which was right below uh, paradise. And I used the Targum to do it. I also use uh, Adam and Eve, religion of Yahudim and others. So I'm going to just kind of go through some of those verses right now. Now we see in Genesis 8.20, it says this, uh, and Noah built or builded the altar before Yahuwah. That altar which Adam had builded in the time when he was cast forth from the Garden of Eden and had offered an oblation upon it. And upon it had Cain and Abel offered their oblations. But when the waters of the deluge descended, it was destroyed. And Noah rebuilded it. And he took off all clean cattle and of all clean fowl and sacrificed four upon the altar. And Yahuwah accepted his oblations with favor. So it's saying that there was there was some... Um, the first thing that Noah did, apparently, is he returned straightway to his own homeland, his own house. I mean, he lived on the um, on Mount Zion before the flood. That's where Enoch lived. That's where Methuselah lived. That's where Seth lived. Uh, all the all the sons of Seth, going up to Adam, they lived on this mountain, and they had this altar here. So let's go through some of these verses just to back up this this uh, this one passage. Give it more. Uh, a second witness, more clarity. This is what we read in, in Legends of the Yahudim. And no, I am not saying Legends of the Yahudim is scripture. Just hang with me here. The sacrifices uh, can see, what, what is this talking about? Oh, okay. So this is the, um, this is where Adam is sacrificing on this altar. The sacrifices consisted of an ox, a sheep, a goat, two turtle doves, and two young pigeons. Amazing, they're all clean animals, but that's probably none of my business. Noah had chosen these kinds because he supposed they were appointed for sacrificing, seeing that Elohim had commanded him to take seven pairs of them into the ark with them. Um, okay, so I'm sorry, this is this is Noah, uh, Noah here, not Adam. Um, whatever, the, pay attention to this next part. The altar was erected in the same place on which Adam and Cain and Abel had brought their sacrifices and on which later the altar was to be in the sanctuary of Yerushalayim. So this is the legends of the Yahudim agreeing with the Aramaic Targum in this case. All right, now we see this in Genesis 2.15. The Targum, which we were there several weeks ago, and Yahuwah Elohim took the man from the mountain of worship where he had been created and made him dwell in the Garden of Eden to do service in the law and to keep his commandments. All right, let's see what uh, the, the legends of the Yahudim said on this. The grace and loving kindness of Elohim revealed themselves, particularly in his taking one spoonful of dust from the spot where in time to come the altar would stand, saying, I shall take man from the place of atonement that he may endure. So you see these two texts here, the Targum and the legends of the Yahudim or the legends of the Jews, agreeing, again agreeing on the same location. The mountain of worship is Mount Zion. Uh, Adam was taken there, and it was the same place of, of atonement. Um, and uh, where the altar would stand, continuing. Let's see, this comes from, oh, this comes from the Cave of Treasures. How fun. And uh, I don't think I've quoted from this in this series yet. And when he rose at full length and stood upright in the center of the earth, this is Adam being created. He is standing upright. It says, he planted his two feet 
the first time he stood up on that spot whereon was set up the cross of our Redeemer, where Adam was created in Yerushalayim. So again, it's saying that the cross was put up uh, on Mount Zion. Notes that the official narrative has Messiah being crucified on a completely opposite side of Jerusalem than the temple. If anyone has ever been to Israel, okay, so imagine if you're standing on the Mount of Olives and you are facing west. You're looking west over uh, Jerusalem. So opposite if you're in Jerusalem, the Mount of Olives would be east to you. All right, so if you're standing there looking west, you're going to see the Temple Mount right in front of you, which is not the temple. It is Fort um, Hadrian. It is the it is a Greek slash Roman fort. Okay, they they all say that's the temple. It's not. The temple would have been Mount Zion, which is to the south of you. All right, south is Mount Zion. That's where the temple stood. To the uh, north of you is where they claim uh, the cross went. So what they do is they push it to the furthest opposite side, and they say that uh, you know he went all the way over there and was you know crucified and resurrected there. The problem is is what we have encountered in this group in our study is that uh, when we went through the Hebrew Gospels, and I I, I checked this with multiple different people who speak Hebrew. I spoke to a a, a big YouTuber. Uh, he has guys who read Hebrew. I gave him the text. I'm like, what do you say about this? And they all agreed that it straight up says in the Hebrew gospel, all four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that uh, Yahushua was, uh, Pontius Pilate let him off the hook. He gave him to the Jews. He led him up to the temple mount, and it was in the temple court, guys, in the temple where Yahushua was beaten, stripped, uh, crown of thorns was put on him. The, the Pharisees did it, and they strung him up right there. Now, I don't know if it was in the court or outside of the court. I think it was probably just outside the temple, but it was still on Mount Zion. So it's kind of interesting how the official narrative, they, they, they kind of have you look in the opposite direction of where it really was. That's really interesting. All right. Uh, so again, we see in Genesis 3.23, we're back on the altar again. I got a little sidetracked. And Yahuwah Elohim removed him from the Garden of Eden, and he went and dwelt on Mount Moriah to cultivate the ground from which he had been created. So now again, we're seeing Mount Moriah is the same as the mountain of worship. It's the same as Mount Zion. It's where Adam was created. It's where he returned. He went and lived there. And then first Adam and Eve, 23, 4, we read, then Adam and Eve took stones and placed them in the shape of an altar. And they took leaves from the trees outside the garden, which they had wiped from the face of the rock, the blood they had spilled. All right. So now we are seeing them build this, um, this altar on the um um on you know mount zion uh, mountain of worship all right now this is where it gets interesting I, I talked about this in my study but i'm gonna throw this out there this is a lot of fun legends of the yahudim claims this the first time adam witnessed the sinking of the sun he was also seized with anxious anxious fears um it happened now this agrees with first adam and eve as well it happened at the conclusion of the sabbath and Adam said, woe is me for my sake, because I sin, the world is darkened, and it will again become void and without form. Thus will be executed the punishment of death, which Elohim has pronounced against me. All the night he spent in tears, and Eve too wept as she sat opposite to him. When day began to dawn, he understood that what he had deplored, but what the course of nature and... Okay, this is what I want you to pay attention to. And he brought an offering into Elohim. This is the altar that he built on on right where the temple would stand. It says, a unicorn 
whose horn was created before his hoofs, kind of interesting, and he sacrificed it on the spot on which later the altar was to stand in Yerushalayim. Now, this is interesting, okay, because this continually goes with my theory that unicorns did exist, but that they were actually clean animals. They weren't horses. Uh, they would have been more of a gazelle-like creature that you could actually sacrifice. If, if Adam is sacrificing this and... Clearly, Legends of the Yahudim uh, is not going to be advocating for Torahlessness, just so you guys all know. So it's saying the same thing, that it was a clean creature. So I find that really fascinating. Uh, and then we see one more passage we go through here. Uh, the Legends of the Yahudim also talks about the um, Cain and Abel, and it says, The place of offering which they chose was the spot where on the altar of, of the temple at Yerushalayim stood later on. Now, the case I've been building here is just to show you that um, that this is where Noah went and resided afterwards. And uh, this is where he lived the last of his days. When you get to the writings of Abraham, it's really interesting because Noah and, and Shem, like the first place he returns to, as soon as the floodwaters recede, he goes back to his home. I just think that's kind of a cool picture um, and that the altar was always built there. The Meshelzedeks uh, always went to that altar. It's also the same place where Abraham uh, sacrificed his son, um, or he didn't actually sacrifice him, but you guys know. And uh, I think that's all I have to say on this chapter. I have a few more notes, but nothing really. Michael, go ahead and finish this chapter. All right. I still have a lot left, so I'll skip some, some of the lesser important ones. Um, then, yeah, we'll, we'll open it up. Uh, so I'm going to start on 13. Um, the Palestinian, that was interesting. It, you know, it's always messing with the dates here. I'm going to post it. Um, it's talking about, and it was the 600th and first year in Tishri, the first of the month. So first of Tishri is Yom Teruah. Um, and, you know, Nehemiah Gordon, a lot of people know who he is, Hebrew scholar. Um, this is what he has to say about it. So... One of the unique things about Yom Teruah is that Torah does not say what the purpose of this holy day is. The Torah gives at least one reason for all the other holy days and two for some. So Unleavened Bread commemorates the exodus from Egypt, um, celebrating the beginning of the barley harvest, Feast of Shavuot, celebration of the wheat harvest, Day of Atonement. Um, we know about that. And then Sukkot commemorates the wandering of the Israelites in the desert and also the ingathering of agricultural produce. But in contrast to all these Torah festivals, Yom Teruah has no clear purpose other than that, we are commended to rest on that day. So this is what it says on that. I'll post it here. Leviticus 23. Then Yahweh spoke to Moshe, saying, Speak to the children of Israel on the seventh month and the first day of the month. You shall have a Sabbath rest and a memorial blowing of the trumpets, a set-apart gathering. You know customary work, and you shall make an offering by fire to Yahweh. So um, some other things on this. So some of you know this, some of you won't. But Yom Teruah, some, at least... Uh, it's sometimes called the feast of which no man knows the day or the hour. Does that sound familiar in the New Testament? Um, the reason is because like the head of the year, we cannot know in advance the day or the year or the hour it will begin. Rather, we must wait on Yahweh to show us the first uh, sliver of the new moon. Um, and then obviously that should ring a bell with Yeshua coming back, right? So Matthew 24 says, you know, now learn the parable of the fig tree when the branch has become tender and put forth leaves. You know that summer is near. Um, continuing, continuing, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my father only. So, but as in the days of Noah were, so also the coming of the son of man. Um, so some more commentary. So Teruah literally means to make a loud noise as well. 
So this word can describe the noise made by a trumpet, but it also describes the noise made by a la large gathering of people shouting in unison. Numbers 10, 5 through 6 says, when, um, when you sound short blasts, the camps pitched on the east are to set out. When you sound short blasts the second time, the ca camps pitched on the south are to set out. So it's basically a large, you, you do a shout, large gathering of people are in unison. Um, Joshua 6, 5 talks about it. It says, it shall come to pass when the ram's horn makes a long blast. When you hear the sound of the shofar, the entire nation will shout a great shout. And the wall of the city uh, shall fall in its place. So in this word, the word shout appears twice, once as a verb of teruah, and the second time as a noun. Um, so although this verse mentions the sound of the shofar, ram's horn, the other instances do not refer to the shofar. In fact, it's talking about shouting the Israelites. So, oh yeah. So the verb form of teruah often refers to the noise made by the gathering of the faithful. So Psalms 47 says, says clap hands, all nations, shout to Yah with a singing voice. Psalm 66, shout to God, all the earth. Psalms 81 says, sing to God our strength, shout to the God of Jacob. Um, and, you know, I didn't write the passage here, but wise virgins, you know, they, they came out to meet the bridegroom and heard a shout. So a lot of people link that, again, to his coming, you know, like I said in that Matthew verse, and then also the wise virgins, they heard a shout. It's the Feast of Shouting. I'm Teru. What do you guys think about that? Okay, um, let's see. Okay, 17 talks about um, uh, every living creeping thing. So every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth, that read abundantly, be fruitful and multiply upon the earth. Um, I'm going to post this so you can read it in context. I'm only going to... Jeremiah 23. I'm just going to read verse 2 and 3. So... But it talks about the coming Messiah and the righteous branch. We talked about that in Isaiah. So, therefore, thus says Lord God of Israel concerning the shepherds who are tending to my people. You have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not attended to them. Behold, I am about to attend to you for all the evil deeds. Then I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and bring them back to their pasture, and they will be fruitful and multiply. So, in my opinion, is this a, you know, a, a millennial reign prophecy. So he, he was bringing his flock, um, the shepherds who were tending to him, scattered them. He's going to bring them back and be fruitful and multiply. So it appears to be fruitful and multiplying during the millennial, or is this, you know, greatest day kind of thing? Um, Zechariah 10 talks about it too. Ephraim will be like a mighty man, and their heart will be glad as it from wine. Indeed, their children will see it and be glad. Their heart will rejoice in the Lord. I will whistle for them to gather them together. For I have redeemed them, and they will be as numerous as they were before. Um, again, and they will be as numerous as the same as fruitful and multiply. Um, so where's the distinction, guys? You know, there's two possibilities. Are there, they're marrying and having children in the millennial, or is this post? Is this what heaven is as well? What do you guys think about that? Are these post-mill verses, or are these millennial reign verses where they'll be fruitful and multiply? They'll be as numerous. Um, okay, so number 18, I'm going to, oh, actually, no, 16 through 19, I'm just going to paste this. So this is verse 16 through 19, you can read it there. Um, but what I want to point out is Noah was given three commands here. So his first command was leave the ark in husband and wife pairs. Uh, number two, actively bring the animals out of the ark and then be fruitful and multiply. So, you know, I, I never put all these together that he was actually given commands once once leaving the ark. What do you guys think about that as well? 
Um, Noel did a lot on building the altar. Um, I'll talk a little bit about that. So let's see. I, I love that the Palestinian goes into more detail. So, and Noah builded the altar before the Lord, that altar which Adam had builded in the time when he cast out from the Garden of Eden. And it offered an oblation upon it. And it, upon it had Cain and Abel offered their oblations. But the one, when the waters of the deluge descended, it was destroyed and Noah rebuilded it. So he's rebuilding the same altar that all these previous um, individuals had the same altar. Um, so <clears throat> it, it appeared, I've seen instances, and it's Noah and Abraham, but building an altar is the first order of business. So when Noah leaves the ark, he built an altar. When Abraham reached the promised land, he built an altar. When Abraham settles in Hebron, he built an altar. And when Abraham offers Isaac, he built an altar. Okay, so a lot of people, I used to believe this, that altars were would coincide with the Levites, right? So I want to talk about altars before the Levitical priesthood and altars after the Levitical priesthood. So the Palestinian says it, KGB didn't, that Cain and Abel, Cain and Abel had altars before the priesthood. Noah, here, altars of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moshe, all before the pre-Levites. Pre okay, so now some altars after the Levites. Joshua had one, Gideon, Samuel, Elijah, the altar in Bethel, kings, Saul, David, and Solomon, all had all had altars after the Levitical priesthood. What do you guys make of that? Um, okay, so this one's my longest one left, 22 short, but I will stick with 21. Okay, because, you know, this, is, this came up uh, a few episodes ago with, I will not curse the ground anymore for man's sake. Um, so, and the Lord smelt the sweet Savior, and the Lord said in his heart, I will then not again curse the ground anymore for man's sake. For the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite any more living thing as I have done. Before we get to cursing the ground, I, you know, the sweet Savior reminded me of the verse of, in Ephesians. So Ephesians 5 says, Be ye therefore followers of Yah's dear children, and walk in love as Christ also had loved us, and has given himself for us as an offering, and a sacrifice to Yah for a sweet-smelling Savior appears to be the same thing. And if you remember either last episode or a few episodes back, I was comparing Noah with Yeshua. And so Noah appears to be giving a sweet smelling savior. And I made the case that, you know, when you look at the, the word in the Greek for last Adam or second Adam, it's actually last. It's eschatos, which is like eschatology, um, study of the last or the end, which I, I was trying to make the point that Noah was a type of Adam as well. Um, and I made that point. You can check that episode out. But it appears he, made, he was the second Adam and made a sweet-smelling Savior. And then Yeshua was the last Adam. And as Ephesians said, made a sweet-smelling Savior. I thought that was cool. All right. Uh, word study time. So for the imagination. So the imagination of a man's heart was evil. Um, I talked about this, I think, during our Genesis 6. But it says, you know, Yahuwah saw the wickedness of man was great in the on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So the imagination or the intent of the heart, I guess the imagination of the man's heart in the KGB is the same. It's the same thing. Talking about he's going to read your hearts and determine whether it's evil or not. Um, First Chronicles 28.9 says, As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with your whole heart and willing mind. For the Lord searches all the hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will let you find him. 
But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. I mean, that should strike fear in people. Um, he understands the intent of the thoughts of our hearts. That's why Proverbs says the heart is wicked, right? Um, finally, uh, Isaiah 26, open the gates that the righteous nation may enter. The one that remains faithful, the steadfast of mind or imagination or intent, you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. Okay. Um, so Jubilees. Jubilees has their own interpretation of this. Um, I'll post that in here so we can follow along. New moon of the third month, he went forth from the earth and built an altar on that mountain. And he made atonement for the earth and took a kid and made atonement by its blood for all the guilt of the earth. For everything that had been on it had been destroyed, save those that were in the ark with Noah. And he placed the fat thereof on the altar. And he took an ox and a goat. Does this sound like Leviticus? And a sheep and a kids and salt and turtle dove and young dove and placed a burnt sacrifice on the altar and poured thereof an offering mingled with oil, sprinkled wine, frankincense. And caused a goodly savor to arise, acceptable before the Lord. The Lord smelt the goodly savor, and he made a covenant with them to not destroy the earth again. Um, so again, this is priestly duties. All these guys are priests. Um, yeah, it's amazing. Okay, so now for the good stuff, um, I want to talk about not cursing the ground anymore. We made the connection a few episodes ago that it kind of shocked me that you know we never caught that. That is it possible that he ended the curse of Adam and Cain? I don't know. Uh, let's see. They add an article that I thought was pretty good. I don't believe it on a lot of this stuff. That there are conclusions, but uh, it was a well-written article, so I wanted to post that. Um, so their summary. This is their conclusion. So, and then I'm going to talk more in detail about it. So curses issued before the flood were individualized rather than federal. So difficulty in soil productivity was limited specifically to particular men. After those men sinned, there was no universal curse conveyed to all of Adam's descendant as a result of his sin in Genesis 3. So this is further substantiated by the fact that Lamech indicates that the pre-flood curses were, were discontinued at the time of the flood, after which soil productivity was hindered by seasonal issues. Um, and we'll talk about that because he talks about it when he named Noah. Uh, let's see, do I want to add this? Um, it, it talks about the other curses were still in effect, like childbearing, death, as a result of inaccessibility of the fruit, um, and cursing during the millennial the millennium. Okay, so let's see. Do I want to talk about this? Okay, so basically, my conclusion was this: is that you know these verses um, talk about obedience will will cure your soil. <laughs> I mean, Deuteronomy, uh, it's one of my favorite books. Deuteronomy, look at all the black highlights here. Deuteronomy 28, and I shall come to pass if thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord, who observe all to do his commandments. So if you're doing his commandments, skip down to four. It says, blessed shall be the fruit of thy body, the fruit of thy ground, the fruit of thy cattle, increase of thy kind, flocks of thy sheep. Obedience will give fruit of the ground. What happened to the curse? Again, this, this thing is making the case that it was individualized. You go to 16, it says, or no, 15, it says, But if you will not hearken unto the voice of the God, to observe all his commandments and his statutes, curse be in the city, curse shall be in the field, curse in the basket. It continues, you can read it. I mean, that's pretty straightforward. So I think it stands. I think he ended the curse. Um, and it's based on how you, what your relationship is with the Father. Um, now, now, that being said, um, 
you know, some possible millennial reign curses based on obedience. So it, this, in my opinion, millennial reign is different than, quote unquote, greatest day or heaven, you know. Um, Zechariah 14, everybody loves that one. That talks about the millennial reign. And if people in Egypt will not go up and enter, the rain will not fall on them. They will have a plague. Um, festival, if they don't go up for the festival of boots to celebrate. Again, that's obedience. And he will not provide rain for them. That, that's, that's linking obedience with that. Isaiah 65, verse 20. There shall be no more thence an infinite of days, nor an old man that had filled his days, for the child of a hundred years old. But the sinner, being a hundred years old, shall be accursed. So that last line suggests the idea of individualized curses resuming for sinners during the millennial. Again, um, now talking about Lamech when he names Noah, it, it's almost prophetic. So, so he named Noah. Noah was born. His father seems to anticipate, perhaps even prophetically, that the events of Noah's life will bring an end to the curse of the soil. So Lamech even uses the phrase toil of our hands. Concerning the sorrow and the sweat of thy face. So let's read it. Genesis 5, 28. And Lamech lived 182 years and begat a son. He called his name Noah. Saying, this shall comfort us concerning our work and toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord has cursed. <laughs> so that's awesome. You know, you never catch these things. But it appears Lamech knew. Um, okay, so I talk about individualized curses. I talk about curses during the millennial based on obedience. But... The great ASA, heaven, you know, whatever you want to call that, there won't be any curse. So he'll, he'll remove that curse because everybody that will make it will be obedient and will have the law written on their hearts. So Isaiah 55, 12. For you shall go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth before you sing, into singing. And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead, so it, it described all the good stuff, right? Now it's saying instead. Instead of the thorn shall come up from the fir tree. Instead of the briar shall come up from the murder tree. It shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Basically saying that that's done with the thorns and the, the briar. Um, and then Revelation 22. He showed me a river of living water, like crystal, flowing from the throne of Yah and the Lamb. Uh, the tree of life was on both sides of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing fruit every month. The leaves of the trees are for healing, and there will no longer be any curse. So I take that as that's the end. That's where the curse ends. Millennial, there's still curses based on disobedience. But at the very end, the disobedient won't make it. So the, the curse will be removed. Finally, number 22. So I'm not going to read all of them, but uh, let's see. So the Palestinian says, Until all the days of the earth, sowing in the season of Tishri, and harvest in the city, the season of Nisan, and the coldness in the city, season of Tibet, warmth in the season of Tammuz, and summer and winter, and days and nights shall not fall. Um, so in the KGV, I was doing, you know, word studies on the word summer and winter. It appeared in Psalm 74 talking about that. But then in Jeremiah, the same word appears, and it's a little bit different. So it says, Jeremiah 40.10, this is the last thing I have. Now as for me, behold, I'm going to stay at Mitzpah to stand for you before the Chaldeans who come to us. But as for you, gather in wine and summer fruit and oil and put them in your storage vessels and live in the cities that you have taken over. So that word summer fruit is also summer and winter. I don't know what to make of that. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. But I thought that was a cool word today. That is all I have uh, on Chapter 8. We got Thank, no you. Thank you, Michael. That was some excellent stuff. And I, 
I have nothing else this week. And as you guys can tell, my I think my um, research on Chapter 8 or my presentation was a little bit lacking more than most weeks just because, you know, I've been trying to keep up and um, kind of get back up to, no, get caught back up with everything this week. As you guys know, I came home a little over a week ago back to my house and it's been a little, a lot of uh, catching up to do. So thank you for um, your your patience and your grace with me on this week. And thank you, Michael, for all your great commentary. I want to open it up to you guys now. Anybody in here, we can talk about uh, Romans chapter three or anything in Romans or, or as well as uh, the Genesis Targum chapter eight. It's up to you guys. I'd like to chime in. Go ahead. I'd like to chime in on um, about what caught my attention was the the doves when he was talking about in the Targum, um, you know, where it was talking about the, the turtle doves and that, and I, I equated that to um, uh, Mary or Miriam when she was birthing Yahusha in um, Luke 2.24, where it says, you know, that, um, and when the days of her, their purification, according to the law of Moshe, were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to Yahuwah. And as it is written in the Torah of, of Yahuwah, that every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy unto Yahuwah. And they offered a sacrifice according to what was written in the Torah of Yahuwah was a pair of, of uh, t- turtle doves or two young pigeons. Um, and they had sacrificed two turtle doves. Uh, and when we bring that back to um, Leviticus, 12 and when it talks about the laws of motherhood and it says when when a woman gives birth and bears a male child that she shall be unclean for seven days and in, in the days of her menstruation she shall be unclean and on the eighth day the flesh of the foreskin shall be circumcised and then she shall remain in her blood of her purification for 33 days she shall not touch any consecrated thing nor enter this sanctuary until the days of her purification are completed but if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean for two weeks and shall remain in her blood purification for 66 days. And then when the days of purification uh, came to completion for a son or a daughter, she shall bring to the priests at the door of the tent of the meeting a one-year-old lamb for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or turtle doves for a sin offering. So we know that they didn't have a lamb because I think it's because Yahushua is considered as the lamb. And that they brought the two turtle doves because it says also, too, that um, if she can't afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two young pigeons uh, for the burnt offering. So I thought that was interesting when he was talking about the the pigeons and the turtle doves. That's kind of where my mind went to was uh, Miriam becoming and giving birth to Yahusha and that he was a lamb and that they sacrificed the two turtle doves in that. It's good. Thank you. Yeah, that blew me away too. Somebody else had wanted to say something. I didn't see who it was. Oh, it was Don. Can you hear me? Go ahead, Don. I can hear you. Yeah, I've uh, I heard you mention Chuck Missler a few times a while back, and uh, I used to listen to anything that would come out of his mouth a while back. He was uh, in the Navy, and when he was going through the academy, uh, they actually gave the dimensions of the most seaworthy boat that could be constructed by man. And he took the dimensions that they had written in the manual, 
and compared them to the dimensions of Noah's Ark, and they were the exact same thing. I just thought that was completely fascinating. A blessed man puts all world-class ships are based on Noah's Ark. And uh, there was something else I wanted to read from Rosalind. She left, but she said, um, you know, we were talking about the raven, and she put, the raven must have found a dead body. <clears throat> I thought that was a good one. Do you have anything to add on that? Well, yeah, I mean, that that's commentary that has, I should have actually mentioned that. I think I had it in my notes that the idea is that there would have been a lot of bloated, uh, you know, bodies, corpses, perhaps still left over that, yes, the raven could have uh, picked some apart. I would imagine, though, after that length of time, it would be very hard to find it. But I suppose if the waters were receding, there would still be some, uh, you know, decaying residue that might be exposed. Well, I thought it was amazing how the curse is like individualized. It, I'm going to go back and look at some scripture differently after hearing that. And it makes a lot of sense because it happened in habitats as well, right? With the mold, if the house was occupied by sinners, unrepentant sinners. No, we can't hear you. I see your mic off. Well, no, I, I had started to and I stopped. Um, I was trying to make the mold connection. Stephanie, what was the, the mold connection you were making? Yeah, I think, <clears throat> I can't remember when, but you guys had um, a few months ago acknowledged how, um, I think you guys did, um, how a sinner's home is, um, like mold is a symptom of sin in the home. And like the, the priest had to go through all of these layers of treatments inside of the home to purge it. But um, I just remembered that and thought, wow, the people who were unrepentant sinners you know, their home appeared to be like cursed with the mold, like that was a sign of the curse. And so I just thought that was amazing because that's a very individual thing for their habitat to be cursed. So when Michael was comparing the um, disobedience to kind of individualized curses, I just thought that was pretty cool. Like your your land is cursed, not all of the land. Oh, um, yeah. Abs abs that was a good point. Thank you. Absolutely. Yeah. If I'm not mistaken, I believe the Turkish government has now set aside an area there where they say the Ark of the Covenant is, or not the Ark of the Covenant, but Noah's Ark, and uh, it's actually set up as a tourist attraction now. They've got a welcome center, the whole nine yards there. Yeah, I think you're referring to the Ron Wyatt site, and it's a national park. They actually call it like Noah's Ark National Park or something like that, and it's supposedly uh, all petrified. And there are people have done scans on it and come up with all sorts of stuff. And uh, so it, it's one of those things where some people are very convicted that is Noah's Ark. I have no opinion on it because I haven't done the research on that myself. Uh, I know other people that don't think it is. So uh, they, I don't they know. Used, uh, they use ground penetrating radar and have actually mapped out the exact uh, coordinates of it and it, the numbers match and also uh down that mountainside they have actual anchor stones there uh, from the ark that have uh, i mean they're huge stones with holes through them 
and they have engravings and all kind of stuff. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a whole entire study that I, I uh, watched about that uh, from Ron Wyatt. It was pretty fascinating. I mean, the evidence is, it's, it's actually pretty overwhelming. Uh, Josh here put an interesting, uh, I'd never thought about this. Uh, he said two questions for the group, and here's the first. Thoughts on the order of leaving the ark. And Noah went for, and Noah went forth, and then his sons, and then his wife, and then the wives of his sons with him. So he just had a question on that. I'd never really thought about that order before. Obviously, I mean, if anyone's going to go forth, forth, it's Noah, right? He's the patriarch. But uh, and secondly, the according to its seed meaning, and Noah went forth, and his sons, and his wives, and the wives of his sons with him. What, uh, Josh, I don't know what you meant by that. Oh, every every animal, every reptile, and every bird which moved upon the earth according to its seed went forth from the ark. I think on the first one he's talking about Noah went first, and then his sons, and then the then his wife, and then the the uh, wives of the sons, like the order. I think he's talking about. And the second one, I have no idea what he's talking about. I don't think it's necessarily in order because it says with him. It's just basically including everyone. It says went forth and his sons and his wife and the wives of his sons with him. So it's just basically saying they all went out. They're just all being named because they're all included. And then where he says, according to its seed, yeah, the KJV says uh, it's kind. So... Yeah, where what trans? Uh, oh, this is the Palestinian text, right? Yeah, so I missed that. So it said it's seed. Yeah. Hmm. I don't know. Okay, guys. Now we're you know kind of at the end of the night here. I don't want to keep anyone any later than we need to. It's going on ten thirty. Um, we can continue talking about this, but I'm going to go ahead. It seems like it's kind of quieting down in here. I'm going to go ahead and officially close this tonight, be the referee and call it. Uh, thank you, Michael, for um, helping out with this study and being a partner with me on this. And um, next week, I'll, <laughs> I'll try to up my game on the Genesis Target and get more uh, better observations for you guys. Michael did a great job tonight. Hope you guys enjoyed the Roman study. We'll do this again next week. Thank you. Shalom, everybody. And that's that's all, folks. All right, guys, well, I'm going to just go ahead and... Oh, go ahead, Michael. I was okay. Shabbat Shalom, and I'll be on time next time. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, that's okay, because he was at a Shabbat gathering, and they're having a good time. <laughs>